0: Hey, everybody. Magnus here. I saw a dude driving around in a cherry red Volvo just a while ago. It took me a second to realize that he'd done a a custom paint job on it. He spray-painted his entire car cherry red. Spray-painted the entire car cherry red. I just... I mean damn. You know? Hey, your attention, please! This is a piece of art. His Kryptonian biological makeup is enhanced by Earth's Yellow Sun. You've got to do where's Buddy? to conceal his own magnet form. Worst episode ever, why? Who shot first? Who gives a shit? It's what's called super nerd nitpicking over something that's not really that important. Apprentice Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and this show's all about comics, movies, and TV shows. But of those three, comics are definitely my thing. And mostly, this show's been all about superhero comics, and to a degree, it'll be about superhero comics today, but I've got sort of a caveat there. But I'll come back to that later. For trivia's sake, you should know that this episode's been percolating literally since before this podcast was even launched. When I first set up the basic format of Trenis Magnus Punch's Reality, I knew I'd talk about this book sooner or later. As a matter of fact, this episode was originally supposed to have been released way back in the fall of 2013, but shit changes unexpectedly sometimes. For starters, I had the brilliant idea to do that nine-part Superman Begins miniseries, which was all about taking another look at a bunch of different Superman comic book origin stories to tie into the Blu-ray release of Man of Steel. Seemed like a casual decision at the time, but that pretty much sidelined this episode for a hell of a long time. But I'm stubborn, so none of my ideas stay buried for very long. Now seemed like a good time to shift gears and... Talk about something that's not quite a mainstream superhero comic. Don't get me wrong, the last thing I'd want to do is give the impression that I have something against superhero comics. Because I don't. In fact, that's my favorite genre of comic. I mean, the very title, "Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, is a reference to superhero comics. But at the same time, I've always believed comics can be so much more than superheroes. They can be anything. Hell, that's a, that's a major reason why Chris Honeywell and I do those shows about the DC Paradox Press line of big books. We both have an appreciation for non-fiction comics. And there's obviously even more different kinds of comics than, than that. And so, I think it's just about time I start talking about that stuff. And I decided to drag all of you loyal subjects into this thing with me. Because it's my show. Because what I say goes. Because I am Magnus. Because my word is law around here. Anyway. But yeah, I always wanted this podcast to focus on all different types of comics, and since I've talked plenty about standard mainstream superhero stuff for the moment. Why not try a little something something different? Of of course, today's comic isn't completely off the beaten path. Nope. It's got a superhero in it. No question about it. But at, at the same time, I don't think anybody thinks of this as being as mainstream as what I usually talk about. Now... Originally, I was going to talk about Kid Eternity, the miniseries published back in 1991, written by Grant Morrison with art by Duncan Fregretto. 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 I have fucking no idea how to pronounce this. Basically, what happened was, ages ago, I got called in for jury duty. And I knew from plenty of previous experience that I'd have plenty of free time at jury duty, so... I loaded my iPad up with stuff to read. And, I mean, it's a, sim- it's a pretty simple proposition, really. Shitloads of downtime requires shitloads of comics, right? Seemed like a good chance to knock out some stuff for Trentis Magnus punches reality, so why not? So, I read the first two issues of that Kid Eternity miniseries and... Excuse me, but what the fuck? I mean, look, I've lived a drug-free life. I just... I don't go in for that stuff. Never have. I never will. So... Maybe that's why Kid Eternity was such a fucking incomprehensible mess for me, but... There you have it. People usually associate weird, druggy, fucking nonsense with Grant Morrison. And I have to tell you, I... I'm starting to suspect that they're thinking about Kid Eternity when they do. Now... The art didn't exactly help anything. I absolutely abhor art like Duncan Figretto's. I mean, I realize you're probably insecure about the fact that you draw comic books. I'm sure your little art school friends make fun of you... ...and you'll never live it down in your little fucking coffee shop meetings... ...but fuck's sake, man, draw something. You know? What a waste. Anyway, but there's no accounting for taste If, if you're in love with Kid Eternity whatever, that's not my problem, I can't help you. All I'm saying is, Kid Eternity is definitely not for me. Of course, that presented a pretty fucking big problem for this episode, because if I didn't have the fortitude to finish off all three issues of that miniseries, and I assure you I didn't, exactly what the fuck was I supposed to talk about for this episode. So, I searched around and found something else. So instead of that drugged out mess, Kid Eternity, we're going to be talking about Animal Man number one through three, written by Grant Morrison, with pencils by Chaz Trurogg, and inks by Doug Hazelwood. With a cover date of September 1988, Animal Man number one begins with a shadowy figure walking along a freeway toward San Diego. This man can hear all the sounds and craziness of a big city, even from several miles away, and it obviously is driving him a little crazy. He thinks of himself as the beast. From there, we cut to Buddy Baker attempting to rescue a cat stuck in a tree for his neighbor. After freeing the cat from his perch, Buddy falls from the tree, but absorbs the cat's balance and agility, and so he manages to land on his feet. After returning home, Buddy announces to his wife Ellen that he wants to be a superhero full time. He and Ellen bicker about it a little bit before their kids get home from school and interrupt everything because that's what kids are good at. But in any case, Buddy's convinced that he can use his ability to copy animal traits to become a real superhero and join Justice League International. We cut back to the beast who's made it to San Diego and is being driven even crazier by the noise and cacophony of a big city. Someone attempts to mug him, but that ends up being a big mistake as the Beast beats him to death in the alley. We cut back to Alan and Buddy as Buddy decides he's going to start training himself and learning the limits of his abilities. It comes out that his ability to copy abilities from animals only lasts about a half hour. While he trains, Buddy accepts an offer from his friend Roger to be his manager and set up media exposure for Animal Man. We cut back to the Beast as he breaks into Star Labs. Shortly thereafter, Animal Man appears on a late-night talk show. Later, Star Labs gets in touch with Roger and asks for Animal Man's help, so Animal Man copies a bird's flying ability and flies off to meet him. We cut to some group of rednecks as they go on a hunting trip together. Because everybody who enjoys hunting is a redneck who drinks alcohol while driving. We cut back to Animal Man at Star Labs meeting with Dr. Myers, who bluntly confesses they originally wanted Superman's help, but he's apparently busy, but help from Animal Man's better than nothing. Dr. Myers explains a little bit of the kind of work they do at Star Labs. They first tour a demolished lab, and then Dr. Myers shows Animal Man, several lab monkeys, which have somehow been fused together into one unworkable living organism. Animal Man number two picks up where the first issue left off, with Dr. Myers elaborating on the Star Labs attack. An eight-foot-tall cockroach wrecked shop on the place and then jumped out a window. Animal Man tells Dr. Myers he's pretty much on his own in terms of the giant fucking-fused monkey of doom, but says tracking down the eight-foot-tall cockroach, that ought to be simple enough. Animal Man's search for the giant cockroach is interrupted by an autograph collector who has mistaken Animal Man for Aquaman. Animal Man figures that's as good a time as any to break for lunch, at which time we're treated to the weirdest fucking Superman cameo that I think I've ever read. Superman hangs around for literally just two pages, pretty much says hello, acts extremely distracted, and then he just fucking flies off. It's it's just fucking weird. Anyway, so we cut to the back of a hotel where the beast attacks a homeless man and fuses him with a rat to throw Animal Man off his trail. The rat monster then attacks Animal Man, and they fight it out in the streets of San Diego. As that's all going on, we cut back to the drunken redneck hunters in the forest. They come across Ellen Baker, who's all hanging around in the woods and everything, and, to put it delicately, they seem to have something other than her best interests in mind. The issue ends with the scene where Animal Man and the rat monster continue beating the shit out of each other in an alley. The fight lasts until the rat monster tears Animal Man's arm off at the socket, Animal Man collapses in the alley and struggles like crazy to keep from going into shock, passing out, and bleeding to death. Animal Man number three kicks off with the beast being revealed as Buana Beast. Meanwhile, Animal Man copies abilities from an earthworm and grows a new arm to replace the one that got ripped off. But the fight's already over because the the rat's been separated from the homeless man. Whatever combined them with each other is worn off, and the rat and the homeless dude are both back to normal now. After that, some techs from Star Labs load the homeless man into their van and forcibly put animal man in there, too. We cut back to the redneck hunters who have Ellen Baker cornered. They feed a cat to some crazed dogs while Ellen watches. Then they smack her around a little bit, and Ellen tells Maxine, her daughter, to make a run for it. We cut back to Buana Beast as he helpfully remembers his origin story to help readers, who have no fucking clue who he is, understand what his powers are, what his origin story is, and what he's all about. After that, Buonabees then goes to Star Labs, and where he wrecks shop on the place. We cut back to Maxine, who's run home to tell Mr. Wiedemeyer what's happened to Ellen. Mr. Wiedemeyer gets pissed when he hears what's happened to Ellen, and decides to take action about it. Meanwhile, back at Star Labs, Buona Beast is doing a great job of, re- of rescuing one particular monkey who's been calling out to him for help. Buona Beast goes through Animal Man like he isn't even there and keeps on moving. Dr. Myers eventually confesses that Star Labs has been working on germ weapons for the military and needed a specific type of ape to do all of the tests and trials for the germ weapon. Not just any ape will do... The Star Labs technician had heard stories of a highly evolved ape living in Africa, so they found one, and took it back to the States to conduct all their tests and shit. The problem here is that the ape's been calling to Buana Beast for help. Apparently he and Buana Beast are friends from way back. Meanwhile, back in the woods, one of the redneck hunters moves in on Ellen and intends to dishonor her in some way when Mr. Wiedermeyer shows up with a gun of his own. A brief shootout follows and the would-be rapist ends up getting killed by one of his own who never wanted to bother Ellen in the first place. Back at Star Labs, Dr. Myers says that the ape Buana Beast kidnapped could infect the entire fucking state of California and render it uninhabitable in just a few weeks. A helpful lab assistant then says that the ape and Buana Beast have been tracked to the San Diego Zoo. Because I'm sure that's exactly where the ape wants to be. At the zoo, the ape tells Buana Beast to run for it and then he dies. Wannabees completely loses his shit over that, and that's where the issue ends. So, I guess I should start my comments off by saying this is probably one of the least Grant Morrison comic books that I've ever read that was actually written by Grant Morrison. It's something other than a straight up superhero story, at least as I define the term, and that's why I'm reviewing it here, but. At the same rate, it's also not the the mindfuck that a lot of Morrison's other work can be. Kid Eternity, I'm looking right at you. Anyway, so Animal Man would eventually become integrated into DC's vertigo line of titles, but at this point the content doesn't seem overtly vertigo to me. Now, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna lie to you, it's maybe a little bit more graphic than the standard superhero fare of the time, but not much about it screams vertigo, at least to me. My hunch is that whatever made this thing more of a vertigo comic must have come later on. I'd never read anything, really, with Animal Man before these comics. In fact, it'd be fair to say I knew exactly jack shit about Animal Man before getting into this. But having finished these comics, I'm not sure I'll ever bother to finish reading the rest of Animal Man's run. I mean, part of me wants to read some more issues just to see where things go, since Morrison's run on this book is supposed to be one of the greatest that DC produced during this era. On the other hand, though, I've got a lot of problems with what I read here. For one thing, I didn't like the depiction of hunters as a bunch of drunken, would-be rapists. Yes, 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 Morrison is telling a story, and that requires shorthand, stereotypes, and other stuff. And that's fine. Whatever. That doesn't mean I have to like it, though. So that's one thing. Another thing is, I just don't like Buddy Baker as a character. I mean, look, he has a kind of neat costume, I guess, and some kind of interesting powers, but... There's just something about him that didn't sit right with me. And what I eventually came to realize is that I don't like Buddy Baker because he's not especially good at his job. As a matter of fact, he's kind of an incompetent fuck-up. Animal Man came off as pretty ineffectual at being a superhero. He gets the hell beaten out of him by the rat monster. Later on, the uh, the Star Labs technicians... They're able to push him around, too. Buddy's just no good at what he does. Also, he's not the fame-seeking, glory-hunting media whore that that Booster Gold is, but that's not for a lack of trying. Animal Man is the ultimate C-list superhero. Honestly, the more Buddy Baker tries to overcome that, the less sympathetic I find him to be. So he has powers that a lot of people don't respect. So what? My opinion is, that people should use their gifts to the best of their ability, rather than worry about being perceived as cool, or powerful, or a leader type, or a type A, or, or, or whatever else. Now, let's be fair here. Maybe that's the exact lesson Buddy ultimately learns in this series. That's totally a possibility, but... At the same time, I just have zero interest in going on that journey with them. And frankly, I'd probably feel at least a little bit different about that if I liked Chaz Truog's art. I could see reading some more issues if a, if a more interesting artist was penciling the book. But for me, for what I consider to be good art, I wasn't fond of Chaz Truog's line style. You see, one thing I usually like to do when I go through these reviews is flip back through the issues and just fawn over some parts of it that really stuck with me, but I can't do that this time. Nothing about these comics had anything in there I could gush about, and a great big part of that is kind of up to Truog's line style. Characters just seemed to have oddly shaped anatomies, strange-looking legs, screwy proportions, and other things. Now, his work with lighting and shadow and perspectives and angles and other things looked pretty good to me. About average, I guess. And I guess another thing, he could even draw animals pretty well. So, my point here is that Chaz Truog seems to have a strong command of the fundamentals... And he even does a great job with things like nature, trees, animals, buildings, vehicles, and all that other shit. But Truog needs, or needed, a lot more practice with drawing humans. Because a lot of his humans barely look human at all. So, it's not even a toss-up. I don't like the character. I don't like the stereotypes that Morrison relies upon to tell a story. The art by Chaz Truog is bland, forgettable, and underwhelming to me. And, look, it, look—it's it's not like I hated the three issues that I read. I don't regret the time I spent reading them. The issue here is that I just don't have any intention to read whatever comes next. The art, the writing, the characters, nothing grabbed me about this book. Now, my opinion seems to be in the minority here. Animal Man and Grant Morrison both have their legions of admirers. So, there are very good odds I'll get shitloads of feedback telling me just how wrong I am, how full of it I am, how brilliant Morrison is, how amazing this comic book is, how I just don't get it, and all that shit. (sighs) The way I look at it is, if getting it, quote-unquote, requires me to huff paint thinner and kill a few hundred brain cells, I'll happily wallow in my ignorance. Thank you very much. Anyway, whatever. best thing I can say about Animal Man as a comic book is that it's just average. And Animal Man as a character is that he's a complete rude And acts like it most of the time. There's a school of thought out there that says indifference is the biggest insult there is. So, take whatever you want from that. <sighs> anyway, I think that's pretty much it for Animal Man. Um, time for a break be right back after these messages now introducing the we're alive fancast a fancast dedicated to a story of survival Hey, this is Mick. This is Redbeard. We would like to introduce our new fancast, in which we will be covering Season 4 of the zombie podcast audio drama known as We're Alive. Join us as we review each episode as it comes out, leading into the conclusion of this great zombie story. We can be found at MickRed.com. That's M-I-C-K-R-E-D.com. Or by searching for We're Alive fancast on iTunes and Facebook. On the disparate reaches of geekdom, here in this restaurant booth, are the most powerful forces of geek ever assembled. Ryan, the toy geek. Scott, the award-winning radio host. Jeff, Scott's minion. And Ron, just run dedicated to truth justice and geek for all mankind it's dinner for geeks dinner for geeks proudly crusades at two twotruefreaks.com why do you think superheroes are so important People need heroes because they need somebody to inspire them, something to aim for, somebody to try to be like. One is the man of tomorrow, with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. The other, the caped crusader, carrying out a solemn vow to spend his life warring on all criminals. For seven decades, they've been the world's finest heroes. They've teamed on radio, comics, newspapers, animation, and more. And now, they're teaming up for a podcast. To the Batmobile, let's go! Up! Up! And away. Atomic matter. Superman and Batman celebrates more than 70 years of the world's finest team with randomly chosen stories featuring the Man of Steel and the Dark Knight. Superman and Batman, featuring your two favorite heroes in one podcast together. Find it today at greatkrypton.com. Okay, we're back now, and I've got just a little bit of feedback to work through. First up, I have a new iTunes review, which I never get sick of. I definitely like getting iTunes reviews. This one is written by Tom Panarese. Now, for those of you who don't know, uh, Tom is the host of uh, a couple of podcasts. Uh, First off, there's In Country, a uh, podcast about the uh, comic book The Nom, there's, so there's that. The, then the other one is Taking Flight, which I think is about uh, Dick Grayson. Basically, it's uh, it's sort of like a uh, From Crisis to Crisis version of uh, uh, Dick Grayson. Basically, tracks him as Rob and then going right on through to becoming Nightwing. And everything that's been done with him in, uh, in the comics. The third podcast, and all due respect to Tom and his the other shows that he does, but my favorite of the bunch is is a, a podcast called uh, pop culture affidavit and the the basic pitch behind that is he takes it it, it, it would be a mistake to say it's just movies or it's your or just TV shows it's it, well the name kind of says it all it's pop culture and so this includes things like music right so <clears throat> if there's uh a really famous and well-known soundtrack out there for a particular movie, then he's going to talk about that. Or I don't know, one of those kind of generational milestone movies that everybody seems to love, like Say Anything. He's going to talk about that. And so it's I, I'm actually sort of at a loss to think of a really good sort of back of the trading card version, you know, description of what exactly his podcast is all about. But just to give you an idea, he one time did a, uh, a show about... Uh, it wasn't BMG, it was uh, Columbia House. Um, basically, he did... Uh, he had a, a Columbia House uh, membership whenever he was younger. And, and I think basically that was sort of... It was almost like a teenage rite of passage, I guess, back in the 90s. This was just something that I think everybody did. I didn't do Columbia House myself. I actually did BMG, but, you know, same basic principle. And, uh, anyway, so he did a uh, entire show about that, the uh, CDs that he that he got through Columbia House, and uh, so, you know, there was an episode about that, but the one I finished up just the other day that I really liked, and of course now I'm blanking on it. Oh yeah, this is a, um, it, it was a, uh, uh, an episode about the movie Singles, the Cameron Crowe movie, Singles, uh, came out in like 1992, I think, and... It's one of those movies that, at least if you ask me, it's just okay. But what that movie I think is really famous for is the soundtrack. Because, I mean, you you talk about the soundtrack of a generation. That's it right there. So you've got stuff from, uh, let me think, Paul Westerberg, uh, Smashing Pumpkins, Soundgarden, uh, Pearl Jam. It's all on there. And so uh, that's basically that. In fact, you guys have all, whether you know it or not, I can virtually guarantee you've all heard at least one song from that soundtrack. What happened was, in Man of Steel, there's a se- there's a, a scene where Clark rescues some uh, some oil workers. They're basically out on a uh, offshore rig. Thing goes up, and so Clark swims out there, comes to the rescue, and then he, he gets everybody out. And then, of course, the uh, the, uh, offshore oil rig, it just basically totally collapses in on itself, and then he washes up to shore. In uh, it looks like Seattle, anyway. I've always thought it was kind of funny that he ended up in, of all places, Seattle, right? And now that's just where I thought that's just kind of what it looked like to me, right? That's that town that he washed up in, that's what it looks like. Looks like Seattle, right? Now, as he, uh, is basically making his way back, you know, he basically, you know, he wakes up and all of that, he steals some clothes off of a clothesline, uh, David Banner style. Now, as he's doing all that, there's a song playing in the background. It's by, uh, Chris Cornell. It's called Seasons. I have been in love with that song, Seasons. <sighs> Shit, I think ever since I was 14 when I first heard it. 13 or 14 or something like that. Chris Cornell, the, uh, lead singer or former lead singer of Soundgarden, he did a, uh, he did that song, that's a, a solo song, Seasons, and it was, I forget where exactly it was used in singles, but it did pop up in Man of Steel and that was where, so anyway, this is a nice little five and a half minute, something like that, digression but um anyway so Tom Panneries right he's the host like I said of Pop Culture Affidavit and the reason I'm beating this thing to death is because I only just started listening to it and I seriously dig his show um honestly like I said all due respect to the other two by and large those are subjects that I'm not going out of my mind about you know I've never I mean I guess I like Dick Grayson as much as the next guy but, you know, no offense, Tom, seriously. It's just, I've only got so many hours in the day, and, you know, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I really don't mean this as, you know, to be disrespectful or anything like that, but not really my blend, you know, uh, a podcast like that. And uh, same kind of thing, really, for in-country. I'm sure both of these are very fine podcasts. I've heard literally nothing but good things about them. It's just not, it's just not really my thing. But, dude, pop culture affidavit is one of the best shows that's going right now if you ask me and Tom's uh, schedule it 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 is what it is and so the message I've gotten is that that's not exactly his top priority as far as his podcasts go he tends to sort of prioritize in country or taking flight and if there's time to work pop culture affidavit and all that fine but that's not necessarily his 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 top priority and you know what I'm not saying that to criticize and Tom if I'm wrong about that if I misunderstood the way this all works for you I apologize you know so I really hope you don't take any of that as me uh, slamming on you or anything like that but like I said it's just I've only got so many hours in uh, in in the day and so I hope you don't take it personally I'm not really all that familiar with the other shows other than pretty much knowing what they are and, you know, sort of what you're talking about. Other than that, I really don't know a whole lot about them. But anyway, but Pop Culture Affidavit, guys, I cannot recommend it to you uh, more highly. It's just one of the best shows that's going right now. And so it's, I, I think there have only been just a few episodes of it. It'll be extremely easy to get caught up. And I have to tell you, even subjects that I can't say that I'm overly enthused about you know like i said i mean I'm, I'm not the world's biggest say anything fan never have been never will be that was a good fucking episode all right it was a good ep and the thing is he has a way whenever he whenever he does any of his um pop culture affidavit shows his enthusiasm for whatever it is that he's talking about it's kind of infectious you know you will find yourself getting into it you know even if you're not necessarily into the, the exact subject at hand, you're still going to enjoy listening to him talk about it. And I think a really good example of that, actually, is going to be the, um, the uh, episode he did with Michael Bailey about uh, Savage Steve Holland, the films of uh, Savage Steve Holland, which are, let me think, um, There's Better Off Dead, One Crazy Summer, Ooh, and I'm blanking on the other one. Okay. Well, shame on me. But anyway, point is, is that, again, that's just a good fucking show. And even if I didn't know anything about Savage Steve Holland, I would still have enjoyed that show, that episode. So um, anyway, so that's that. My point is, you know, if you're not listening to Pop Culture Affidavit, you need to. I mean, I can't really think of any other time I've gone on a sort of 10 minute long digression about another show when I'm supposed to be reading feedback, that's how fucking good pop culture affidavit is, right? So if you're not listening to it, fucking listen to it. All right. I give it four out of five angry gingers. All right. Whatever rating scale that you want to use, Tom gets the prize. Pop culture affidavit's a fucking uh, phenomenal show. And like I said, people who are More into the Nom comics and Dick Grayson as Robin or Nightwing or whatever else, they all swear by his other shows as well. So if those are up your alley, um, go for it. So that's that. Anyway, so like I said, this is Tom writing um, uh, a, a review on iTunes, basically says, or it's titled, Insightful, Funny, and All Around Great. Posted January 24th, 2014. Tom writes, Trenus Magnus Punches Reality is one of the best pop culture podcasts I've listened to in quite a while. And let me put this on pause and say, what kind of fucking high praise is that? This guy has a pop culture podcast of his own. The fuck does it say that he likes my show? You know? I mean, to me, that's a hell of an endorsement right there. But anyway, to get back into his, um, into his uh, iTunes review, he says, Magnus has a real insight into what he's talking about, and even when you don't agree with his opinions on what he's covering... You're at least interested. The show takes on a nice variety of topics, and Magnus is not afraid to shy away from materials that others haven't touched or have a disdain for. The Schumacher Batman films, for instance. And let me start, uh, let me let me just put this thing on pause. And, you know, I, when I first started this show, guys, um, what you need to understand is that I had assumed that we had kind of reached a, uh, a sort of saturation point. All right? with podcasts, where there's just not a whole lot of room for people like me as compared to what the big boys have already done. I mean, Michael Bailey has been doing this stuff for a very long time now. He, I don't think he got in on, uh, with podcasting necessarily on the ground floor, but it was pretty early on. And so because of that, he's attracted an audience that I'm not completely sure is even possible now, right? This is what I was thinking at the time. I don't know that that's even possible to do anymore, right? Because there have just been so many podcasts that have the, that have come along, and there just probably isn't going to be a whole lot of room for newcomers, right? And so whenever I, I was putting together, you know, this huge master list of all the stuff that I wanted to um, do for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, mm. the assumption I made was that on the best day I ever had, I'd be lucky to scrape together something like, I don't know, six, ten, twelve regular listeners, and then that'd be it. And so that sort of affected the, um, the type of show that I did and the topics that I chose, right? And I... I don't want to say that I basically set out to do a sort of shock show because I don't want anyone to think that this is a shock show. It's not. But at the same time, all of this stuff was basically chosen with the intention of not really ever building up just a huge audience, you know. And so I figured, well, because no one's really going to be listening anyway, I can get away with talking about how cool i think the the joel schumacher batman films are because fucking nobody's listening the hell difference doesn't make right so imagine my surprise when i actually did start attracting a much bigger audience than i was originally expecting and then on top of all of that one thing i've noticed is that The first couple of episodes especially Seem to have really stuck with people First, I talked about Smallville Which conventional wisdom has It basically says that Smallville sucks And so I was the guy in the room that was saying Well actually guys All the things that you guys are saying about Smallville All those sort of criticisms And and barbs and all that stuff None of that shit's true Then I went after Superman 2 And pretty much gave it both barrels. And again, this is one of those things that's kind of fanboy orthodoxy had uh, basically we'd all sort of reported in on, right? And we all apparently except for me, said, you know, Superman 2 is maybe not quite as good as Superman the movie. But it's still fucking awesome. And so and so that kind of caught a lot of people off guard. So here I am. First, I defended Smallville, which I don't think anybody was expecting. Then I went ahead and turned around and went after Superman 2, sort of with knives and pitchforks and torches and all this stuff, right? Again, not what people were expecting. But I think the real creme de la creme, when people started going back to listen to the to the shows that I did early on, the thing that ma- that really pushed me over the edge for a lot of people was defending the Schumacher Batman films. And if you've never actually heard that episode, I, I I think it was the second episode this the second episode anniversary retrospective extravaganza spectacular and or whatever I called it. And basically what happened was I went on the record <clears throat> to defend both Batman and Robin and Batman Forever. And the reason for that was because, you know, whether anybody likes it or not, we live in a sort of, uh, we live in a sort of uh, post-Chris Nolan world now, right, where to a lot of people, the definitive Batman is pretty much come and gone. Now, whether or not I agree with that isn't even the point. The point is that to a lot of people, Chris Nolan is definitive. And you know what? Whatever. all right. That's <clears throat> I'm not criticizing that. I refuse to criticize that. All I'm saying is that is kind of a consensus opinion to a lot of people. And to me, it kind of felt like Joel Schumacher was sort of a, a victim in all of that. The reason that all of this happened was because, by which I mean my recording the episode, the reason I did that was because, you know, I remember there was a time when people had... Mostly positive things to say about Batman Forever, right? This was around 1995, 1996, and maybe the beginning of 1997. People mostly had positive things to say about it, you know? And it was generally regarded as a sequel that didn't disappoint. Nothing matches the original, which is to say Batman 1989 that had Michael Keaton and uh, Jack Nicholson, Kim Basinger, all that... nothing really touches that but at the same time batman forever was generally regarded as a as a pretty worthy sequel now partly you had batman and robin in 1997 and that kind of put a little well, a lot of of stink on batman forever but i swear to think that still the prevailing wisdom among a lot of people was well, okay, Batman and Robin, whatever, but Batman Forever is still good. And that's the point. You know, Batman Forever is still good. Maybe the fourth one didn't turn out as well as it could have. But, you know, Batman Forever is still a good movie no matter what. And, like I said, I'm not crazy. I know that people really said that, really believed that. And it felt like, you know, now that we have an. In- a communication tool as powerful and as vast as, as the Internet, you would think that we would have a lot more diversity of opinion. And what I find is that, no, we don't. Basically, certain opinions become sort of orthodox, and anything that goes too far outside of that is, in, in a weird kind of way, it's sort of shamed into silence. And, um, in fact, if not uh, silence outright fucking, uh, I don't know, agreement. You're kind of forced into line. And I just, i that's always bothered me. And it's not just the Schumacher Batman films, all right? I, there are a lot of things out there, some of which will I'll be talking about in the not-too-distant future, but there are a lot of things out there that It's just not politically correct to like. Or to go the other way, it's just not politically correct to not like, right? And either way, you're sort of uh, the lone voice in the wilderness if you're the guy that, you know, has a dissenting opinion. And one of the things that I hadn't counted on, and this is the point of all of this, this fucking diatribe that I'm going on right now, the point of all of this was that I severely fucking underestimated how many people... Listen to that episode, the Schumacher Batman episode. And at least whether they agreed with me or not, they still appreciated the fact that somebody was out there talking about and praising things that most people long ago decided they didn't like. And so, I guess I didn't completely understand how much goodwill that had earned me. And so... It always surprises me when, you know, people write in to me, whether it's an iTunes review or if it's an email or whatever else, or it comes up on Facebook that I'm the guy that had the balls to speak up in defense of the Schumacher Batman films, and they're not even saying that to be critical. They're saying that, you know, saying, oh, this is the guy that did it, and they're actually kind of surprised. Maybe they agree with me, maybe they don't, but they appreciate that somebody had the balls to say it, I guess. I don't know. So, and... Like I said, when I originally started this show, I never thought that I would have the kind of the size of audience that I do. And so it didn't occur to me that there are people out there that might actually get kind of pissed off about saying, uh, me saying some of this stuff. And you know for the Schumacher Batman films, there really wasn't any blowback to speak of. For Superman 2, different fucking story. All right. A lot of people really were not happy about what I had to say about Superman 2. And like I said, I didn't set out to do a shock show. I was just basically operating under the assumption that I can say anything I want. Because who the hell cares? No no one's listening to me. No one's going to listen to me. Nobody's going to give a damn. right? But they do. And they did. And so what I'm saying is that these things that I thought were, were going to be interesting to maybe on the just fucking best day I ever had, 12 people, a lot of people, actually, a lot more than 12 people are listening each month. And, you know, I I don't want to make it sound like I'm ungrateful for that. It's actually the, the complete opposite. I know, like I said, I went into this assuming nobody would care. Imagine how surprised I am and how happy that people do care. All right. But, you know, I guess what I'm saying here is that I didn't, think it was ever going to be as as big as it is and so I figured I could get away with I don't know just being maybe a little bit more raw you know it like if you were to go into a podcast knowing in advance that you're going to have I don't know whatever crazy big success is right for a podcast whatever just you whatever you personally consider runaway success if you knew for a fact, before you even you know started recording anything, that you were going to that you were going to have that kind of success, I think that would sort of color the type of show that that you that you run. Now, at this point, I'm honestly too lazy to change. I don't think I really want to change the kind of show that I do, and you know, I've I got the attention that I've gotten by doing the type of show that I do, and so it, it feels a little bit disingenuous to change things up now that a lot of people actually are listening. So, I mean, I'm kind of stuck here, but at the same time, fuck, I'm rambling. Okay. My point is that, like I said, I just severely underestimated how much people were going to appreciate me saying, uh, I don't know, non-orthodox opinions, non-fanboy approved opinions. And so, there, yes, there are circumstances where that backfired somewhat, kind of, with Superman 2. But then there are times when, like, like I said, whether people agreed or not, they kind of appreciated listening to me talk up the Schumacher Batman films. And that wasn't done, you know, in, intentionally to torque people off. I really do like them. Now, in, I, I think that Batman Forever has some structural problems to it. I would love to have seen the original cut of it, the director's cut by Joel Schumacher, because that's supposedly a much more eh, intense and cerebral film. I like the theatrical cut as it is, but there are eh, some, some, some pacing issues. And pacing issues that don't really exist with Batman and Robin, which I also like. And... Like I said, I mean, I'm not saying this, you know, to be shocking or provocative or anything like that. I I really do like it. So, um, are either of those my two favorite movies of all time? No, they're not... I don't even think they're in the top ten. Or twenty, even. But they are good. Better than they get credit for. And that was my only point in bringing all that shit up. Just a sec, I'm gonna get some water here. Anyway, so... All of this is to say that, um, that Tom, obviously you're not the first one to, um, to mention the Schumacher Batman films to me. So, thank you. And to finish off his iTunes review, he says, Tom says, Start with episode one and work your way forward. You will not be disappointed. And so, let me just say, Tom, thank you very much. I appreciate you uh, taking the time to respond to... Uh, or not respond, to, to file a, um, a uh, an iTunes review. Because like I said, and I say this to everyone, I know that it's kind of a pain in the neck to log into the iTunes portal and then find the right feed and then type all the shit out. I understand that. And that's why I appreciate you taking the time to do it because I know that it can sometimes be a little bit of a pain in the neck. So thank you very much. And to all of you listening, the more iTunes reviews I get, the better. I would appreciate more. I mean, so I'm not trying, you know, I don't want to sound like I'm begging, but, you know, yeah, I, I would appreciate some, some more iTunes reviews because I've got a new feed, the title of which is Two True Freaks Presents Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. Obviously, the, the old Libsyn feed is gone. That's uh, hasta la vista. It's no bueno, or no, no mas. It's fini, concluded. It's over. It's done. And so the way that it is right now, my 2 True Freaks feed, which again is titled 2 True Freaks Presents Trinus Magnus Punches Reality. I have uh, 5 reviews on... This this is interesting. I have 5 reviews but 6 ratings. So I guess somebody... And they're all 5 star ratings too. How about that? Um, But I guess somebody went to the iTunes uh, page is that even the right word? Well, whatever, the iTunes page. And they, I guess, rated it. They gave me six stars, but they didn't actually write something. Huh, that's cool. I did not even notice that. But yeah, I've got five reviews and six ratings. Very cool. Anyway, but I'd love to have um, even more iTunes reviews. So if uh, you guys, you guys have nothing better to do, feel free. I, I, I'm obviously going to read them on the air, and or on mic anyway. And so that is that. And as far as iTunes reviews, that's the only new one that I have. Now, as far as email is concerned, this first, this first email, this comes from um, Paul in North Carolina. The title of which is Shadows of the Empire. This was sent through on February the 13th. And what Paul writes is, or sorry, Shadows of the Empire episode. My apologies, that's actually the title of it. Shadows of the Empire episode. Sent through on February the 13th, and Paul in North Carolina writes, I'm listening to your podcast for the first time today, and it's good. It's so good to hear someone else say that the hyper-realism thing has gone too far. I can't get my head around how far it's gone. Some fans seem to assume that's just what everything is trying to be. Or they pretend that that's what they're supposed to be, because that's the prevailing idea right now. I'm 41, and I've been reading comics since before kindergarten, and it never occurred to me that this shit was supposed to be seriously plausible. Fun? Yeah. Awesome? Yeah. Imaginative, thoughtful, mythic, badass, poetic? Yeah. But what would really happen approach misses the point, in my opinion. Thanks for letting me know I'm not alone in that. Rant over. And, honestly, my pleasure. To take, just to put your email on pause, that's my pleasure. Now, I'm not sure if you've listened to subsequent episodes, but if you like this theme, sort of coming at it, though, from a different point of view, let's to do a Star Wars, and actually, you know what, before I even get into that, uh, for those of you who aren't listening, basically, in the, during the Shadows of the Empire episode, I had Scott Reifen from Dinner for Geeks on here to talk with me, Primarily about the Shadows of the Empire paperback, the the uh, novel, and then from there, once we I, we both felt like we sort of discussed that well enough. We started talking about other aspects of it, the uh, the video game, the toys, the comics, and you know, so basically, we tried to be as. Uh, I don't, I, I don't know as I want to say necessarily comprehensive, but we wanted to be as thorough as we possibly could about Shadows of the Empire. And during the course of our, con- during the course of our uh, conversation, I just bit the crap out of my tongue, sorry. Uh, during the course of our conversation, one of the things that came up between the two of us was that Shadows of the Empire is definitely set in the same type of light, airy, kind of fantasy type of approach that the movies themselves are set in. And as a result, Shadows of the Empire is by far uh, the most authentically Star Wars uh, book that at least I've ever read. It's my favorite of the bunch. and Because it, it kind of feels like this could have been one of the movies. Now, obviously it's not, but it feels like it could have been. And just the style of it, the, uh, the way that things are written and everything, it just... It feels like this is all very of a piece with the original trilogy. By which I mean the unaltered trilogy, right? And it just, it feels like it's very much in line with that. So, that same type of style and all that. So, anyhow. And where I'm going with all of that was, we Scott and I just kind of shook hands and agreed that this was definitely the way that Star Wars books need to be written all right? And the whole gritty, realistic thing that a lot of Star Wars novels kind of try to strive for, push comes to shove, that does not benefit the material. I don't care what anybody says. That does not work for the material. And I think the best evidence of that is... Actually, you know what? I'm going to revisit this, actually. Ah, I'm going to revisit this in just a bit because this actually somewhat touches upon issues that Paul brings up in his email. But basically, Paul, the reason I went on this whole little tangent to begin with is if you liked that conversation that he and I had, I had a sort of similar one with uh, Norm Brayfogle a, um, a couple of weeks ago, right? And this is, um, let me think, what? I think the episode number for that was episode 30, right? Norm Brayfogle, the um, former artist of uh, Batman, he came on the show and we talked at length about realism, specifically in comics. Not so much to do with Star Wars, obviously, but more to do with realism in in comics. And I think you might find that discussion uh, interesting. Right. Now, I don't know if you've listened to it or not, but in case you haven't, he and I basically make a lot of those uh, kind of similar points, except about specifically Batman, but also uh, DC, I think, in general. So, <clears throat> so that's that. So to get back into uh, Paul's email, he writes, I've read a lot of the Star Wars novels. Usually I'd binge on them for a few months, then stop for a long time, then binge again. I think I'm done with them now along with the Star Trek novel- novels, which I've read f- far fewer of. There are too many other books to read, and my appetite for expanded universe stuff is really small now. It seems like they might reboot or slash discard much of the EU when the movies start. They certainly won't incorporate all the developments from the novels into Star Wars 7. I missed out on Shadows of the Empire, but I do have... A Darth Vader figure that I think came from that line of toys. Good show. I'll listen to more. Thanks, Paul in North Carolina. So, Paul, let me first of all say thank you. I appreciate you taking the time to write in. And uh, email me and and, um, uh, just share all this stuff with me. Now, as to Star Wars novels, what I told Scott Rifen and what I'm going to repeat here is that I'm pretty much done with the expanded universe. but i don't think i ever really talked a whole lot about exactly why that is what happened you know why am i why did i turn my back on the eu so now's as good a time as any to get into it basically what happened was i want to say it was september of 2005 right and what happened was i found myself <clears throat> I found myself in an airport, right, and then obviously I'm on. Later on, I'm on a plane, and I had a Star Wars novel with me, and I just wanted to use <clears throat> use that to uh, occupy myself. I'm going to take another drink. Sorry, my just my throat is getting so dry here. It's all this, it's all this talking. Hold on. Hmm. Apologies. <clears throat> all right, so. And I had this um, the Star Wars novel with me, and obviously the idea is that take that on the plane, and you know that'll that'll keep me occupied. So that was um, September, end of September, 2005, and that's what was going on. I even remember the name of the book. It was part of a um, of a larger series, the name of which escapes me, but the name of this particular paperback, this entry in, in, into this series was um, I believe it was the Joiner King. The Joiner King. And I honestly could not tell you who wrote it. I just remember it's a mostly it's a basically green cover and I think it was something to do with like an alien species of bugs or something like that. And they've got like telepathic ability. I don't it was fuck it was something, right? And I wanna say that I was about maybe a quarter of the way through the book or maybe halfway through the book. It was something like that. And it hit me. I don't give a shit. I don't. I don't care. And the reason for that is because the story had... It just kind of felt like it was a very sort of modernized, updated, sort of dark and gritty sci-fi kind of a thing, right? And I just... I. I was sitting here and I'm just reading this stuff and I'm like, you know, dude, why are you, why am I reading this? I fucking hate this. Why am I reading it? But what I rationalized to myself, at least, or what, what I had rationalized up to then was that I'd read a shitload of, of the books that were published by, um, uh, by Bantam. And then when the Star Wars license had moved over to uh, Del Rey and the New Jedi, uh, Jedi Order series had started... I did kind of get into that, you know, and here I am. I'm now reading yet another dark and heavy, gritty sci-fi type of Star Wars. And, and I was thinking, well, I mean, I've, I've read The New Jedi Order and I have all those books and I've got a good collection going. I can't stop. Right. But it had, it literally had gotten to the point by the time I'm reading The Joiner King, I was reading these books and I was buying them. With no real expectation that I was going to enjoy it, or I was going to like what was happening with the characters, or anything. <clears throat> and so, now, <clears throat> to be fair, that realization by itself might not have been enough to convince me to give up the expanded universe, but there there was another factor here in all this that kind of, yeah, it affected the decision I made, right? Which... If you're counting fingers, what you remember is that 2005, that's when Star Wars Episode 3 came out, right? Revenge of the Sith. And that, that had come out, and it, it hit me. You know, I had real Star Wars over the summer. And now, this this kind of, this Joiner King, in fact, the expanded universe in general, mostly, is kind of methadone compared to the fact that I had the real stuff this summer, and it was... You know what? I'll come back to that in a minute. But anyway, I had the real stuff this summer, and now this Expanded Universe stuff in general, and this Joyner King book in particular, it's just... It's just not good. It's not good. It's not fun to read, I don't enjoy a whole lot of it. now like I said, I was willing to put a lot of that bullshit aside when I was going through the new, the uh, new Jedi order, which is at least as dark, at least as gritty, at least as sci-fi as the Joiner King in, in particular, but that whatever series the Joiner King came from in general, the new Jedi order was that much darker, that much grittier, all of it, right? Which I wasn't overly fond of at the time either. But the way I kind of rationalized it to myself, at least at the time, was that... Look, I can read the New Jedi Order. And I can at least enjoy the fact that... You know what? Anakin Solo is by far the most Star Wars character of the new generation, anyway. He is the most Star Wars character of the new generation. Uh, He was the kid that was... It was making all of the jokes. He was the one that had a love interest with Tahiri Vela. On and on and on. And I can at least enjoy the fact that Anakin Solo is just a really fucking cool character. And then fucking Star by Star comes along by Troy Denning. And it kills Anakin Solo. Really the only like really interesting character in, the, in that whole series. And they killed him. Now, yeah, I—I'm what I've been told is that apparently Anakin Solo was supposed to be the main hero of that series, and it was Jason Solo that was supposed to die. And apparently, George Lucas himself said that, Hey, guys, I'm writing about a character called Anakin. You guys need to kill this poser, Anakin Solo guy that you're writing about. And they didn't have a choice. They had to kill him. And so... <clears throat> Thanks a lot, George. Anyway, and so, now, I might actually have given up on the New Jedi Order right then and there. But this is just one of those quirks of history that I don't know that people remember today, right? But Star by Star came out, I think, less than a month after 9-11. And if you think about the stuff that happens in Star by Star as a novel. I mean, dude, look, I've I, I don't know anybody who was hurt, injured or killed <clears throat> during the September 11th attacks. I've never been to New York. And I guess the reason I'm sa- what I'm saying here is that I have less emotional stake in this than most people do. All right? As far as, you know, personal, like it be like the This being personal, like, people I know were affected by this, they weren't. I don't know anyone who was affected by this, not really. All the friends that I have in New York, they were fine. They were nowhere near it, right? And so, but I have to tell you that things like that come along sometimes in in history, and it just affects everything, right? And it was only until I read Star by Star, and in particular, there's a speech that, that Leia Solo makes, and God, I'm getting choked up just, just thinking about it, but it felt like that was the exact book that we needed to, to read and the exact speech that we needed to hear just when we needed them both, just when we needed the book, just when we needed the speech. Because, you know, for the first time, maybe ever, I was able to really process what happened on September the 11th, and, like I said, I mean, I was less affected by that than most people, right? But I hadn't realized just how uh, emotional I'd gotten, because guys, I fucking cried. I read that speech that Leia gives uh, towards the end of Star by Star, and... You know, I mean, I'm not going to lie. I, I fucking, I I cried. And that was, I think, the the main reason I ended up just sticking around so long as I did with the New Jedi Order, because, you know, that kind of hit me where I lived, in a sense. I mean, like I said, I, I didn't know anyone who was affected by 9-11, so it's not like I was dealing with that. I'm just saying that, it's just this huge national tragedy, and anyway, so, um, and I guess that was the first time that I'd maybe really come to, I don't know, that, I'd, that I'd, I'd just kind of come to accept all of that. Anyway, and so, because I was talking so much about Leia's speech in star by star, I thought, you know what, I'm just going to go ahead and read it. So, here it is. (coughs) This is not the end, Leia said. Two years ago, the Ijon Vong entered our galaxy. They came, not as friends and equals, though we would gladly have welcomed them of such, but as thieves and conquerors. They saw a galaxy at peace and mistook the strength of our convictions for frailty of arms, the wisdom of compromise for the timidity of cowards. They attacked without provocation or mercy, slaying billions of our citizens, enslaving entire worlds, and sacrificing millions of beings to appease the bloodlust of their imaginary gods. They believed we would be easily defeated, because they believed we would yield without a fight. They were wrong. We have fought at I Thor, the Black Bantha, Borleas, and Corellia. We have fought them every leg of the way from the Outer Rim into the core. We've lost untold numbers of loved ones, my own son Anakin, and my husband's dear friend Chewbacca among them, and now we're battling them in the skies over Coruscant itself. We're still fighting. Soon, the enemy will be on our rooftops, in our homes, roaming the dark underlayers of our city. To those able to evacuate, and to those trapped behind, I say the same thing I would tell my twins, were I able to reach them behind enemy lines keep fighting. This is not the end. Twice already, Jedi-led forces have decimated Ijon Vong fleets, and we enter each battle with new weapons and better tactics. We've prevailed against ruthless enemies before, against Palpatine, against Thrawn, against the Sea Rook. This is a war we know how to win. Keep fighting until you can fight no longer, then exhaust the enemy chasing you, and turn and fight some more. Keep fighting. I promise you, we will prevail. Now, I'm getting choked up just reading this stuff, but fuck's sake, dude. Imagine reading that with all of the emotion and all of the the rawness of of 9-11 and everything that happened. And it's all fresh in your mind. And dude, you know what? Call me a bitch if you want, but man, I cried like a baby. And... I think star by star, and this is the point of all this, I think star by star is the main reason that I was able to keep going with the new Jedi Order when, you know, by all rights, the death of Anakin Solo really should have been the end of the line for me. And so... That charm didn't exactly last forever. I guess nothing does. And so by the time I got to the Joiner King, I just didn't give a shit did not give a shit and like I said a great big part of that was the fact that I just was not as emotionally invested in that new storyline but the other thing was like I said I had gotten the real Star Wars as far as I was concerned real Star Wars that summer and it just kind of felt like this isn't this isn't Star Wars this is this is a knockoff this is an imitation this is not the real thing and so that's that and you know I guess the really fucking sad thing is I don't even have that to fall back on anymore you know look time was I was really big on the prequels right I swore by the prequels I thought they were just incredibly fucking underrated movies and this is one of those times when I end up kind of having to give the nod to Fanboy Orthodox I mean you guys actually you were right after all But, you know, for a long time, I just kind of felt like the prequels, and especially The Phantom Menace, just got picked on fucking way, way too much. And I was coming, and just, if that sounds like heresy to you, just let me give you my side of it, right? I grew up watching the original Star Wars trilogy, just like the rest of you, but I really didn't understand why it was that people lost their minds over Star Wars. I mean, yeah, the movies are good. But I mean, actually, I don't get it. Why do you guys just go so crazy for these for these movies, right? Well, fucking I start watching the Phantom Menace on opening day and Jedi are running around all over the place. They're clearly they're not in control of the Republic, but obviously they have some level of enfranchisement with the, the Republic. They're not living and hiding on desert planets or swamp planets or anything like that, they're out there in the open, large and in charge. And this Palpatine dude, he's only a lowly senator, and obviously there's still some form of democracy that's occurring in the galaxy far, far away. Darth Vader's a kid. I mean, how do we go from the world, or the galaxy, I guess, the galaxy that we saw in Episode One, to what we saw in the original films, Right. And that was really the beginning of my Star Wars, like, big fandom, right? And so I kind of felt like I was seeing all of these mythic qualities in the film that I maintain are still there. But when people would pick on the movie because, you know, of this pacing issue or that annoying character or or whatever else, I just, I felt like they were kind of fucking missing the forest for the trees, You know, um, basically, it had very Star Wars type of action sequences. And, uh, you know, who doesn't love that lightsaber battle at the end of the film? And I just kind of felt like there's so much cool stuff going on in this movie. I just kind of felt, you know, people were just sort of missing the point. And so... Episode 2 comes along, same kind of a thing. Episode 3 comes along, same kind of a thing. And I kind of considered myself to be a Star Wars saga fan, right? And that was pretty much <clears throat> where I was coming from with all this. And I honestly, I can't remember if I've told this story before. But basically what happened was... Uh, I want to say it's like 2012? I think it was 2012... Um, there was a <clears> three <throat> D re-release of The Phantom Menace, and so, like the rest of you, I hadn't seen The Phantom Menace in theaters since it was in theaters, right, since 1999. And so I thought, well, you know, this is gonna be this is gonna be fun, you know, and uh, I wanna I wanna see it, especially in that really high quality uh, digital projection. And all that stuff. And don't get me wrong. I mean, like, the scenes that everybody likes, the pod race and the lightsaber battle and the chases and all that stuff, that shit all holds up. But for the first time, I was able to see what people were talking about. Like, take Jar Jar, for for example, right? I kind of considered myself to be... An armchair Jar Jar defender, because honestly, I then as now I believed that George Lucas was going somewhere with Jar Jar. Right? Had Jar Jar been better received, I swear on a stack of Bibles that you know what—that's actually a little a little theory that um, I I'll come back to in just a minute. But anyway irrespective of the fact, though, that he was intended to be annoying and kind of goofy, it doesn't change the fact that he's annoying and goofy, all right? And just scene after scene of him acting like a complete jackass, I didn't see it before, you know, because I was so caught up in the effects and the action and the pod races and the chases, and holy shit, this stuff is all so cool, that I wasn't really, I don't think I was paying attention to this thing as a film, I was so caught up in just the eye candy and spectacle of it all, number one. But then, number two, I was also kind of grateful to the Phantom Menace for kind of stoking my fandom in Star Wars, right? And so, I, I think basically what I'm saying is I'd kind, I, I sort of had a blind spot there where I shouldn't have, right? And I'd sort of lived with it for all those years and didn't, I didn't even realize it. Until the re-release. And then, you know, you go through these just ponderously fucking slow, boring, pointless scenes. And then you have Jar Jar acting like a complete jackass. And he's I mean, he really is that fucking annoying. And this movie is not as good as I remember it. Not even fucking close. I hadn't realized how often I, when I would watch the movie, I would skip... Particular scenes. Because they're just fucking boring. But when you are sitting in a movie theater. And you are forced to sit through every fucking last scene. You kind of start seeing after a while that. You know what? This movie has flaws. That I didn't notice right away. And then I subconsciously fucking suppressed. Over the years. And I wish I could say it got better when I rewatched watched um, Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith. You know, later on, but you know, it didn't. What I noticed was that Attack of the Clones it it had a it had a sort of odd pace to it. I don't know how how else to put it. It was just it was just very strange and it's just bizarre. And Revenge of the Sith, though, I mean, my God, that was the straw that broke the camel's back. Um, it was like You would think, you know, somebody, like, okay, you've got got an auteur filmmaker, George Lucas, right? He's been out of action for, I don't know, like 15 years or however long it was. Or shit, I guess, really, since, well, yeah, no, 15 years, sounds about right. And he'd been out of action for 15 years. So you would think that the first movie he makes after that kind of break, it would be pretty rusty. And then he'd get a little bit better in the second one. And then he'd be really on top of his game by the third one. And that's fucking not what happened. On a strictly technical level, episode one is the best of the prequels, and it's just diminishing returns after that. You know? And, because I gotta tell you, man, Revenge of the Sith, it has just this really weird, fucked up, non-sequitur dialogue in so many scenes. I mean... Okay, like a character just comes into the room and says, holy shit, it's 2.30 in the afternoon. And then somebody else responds, be patient. I mean, it's like, those two fucking things have nothing to do with each other, all right? The dialogue, it just... There's a meaning there that it's intending to convey, and it's not. I mean, it's... And I don't mean like this in the sense of, you know, realistic people in a realistic world just don't fucking talk like that. I mean, no, I'm well aware of the fact that this is a fantasy. But, no, I mean it more from the angle that this is just, it's like it's written by a second grader or something. I don't know. And so, the thing that just blows my fucking mind is that if you watch the action scenes, those things are fucking awesome. Or if you analyze the films and, you know, you just look at the themes of the movies... Again, this is powerful shit. But the scenes themselves that make up the movie are just really weird. They're structured weird. They they have just fucked up weird dialogue and all this other stuff. I mean... And, and here's the point. I guess I didn't understand all of that at the time, right? And so, I guess when... Over time, first, I lost the Expanded Universe, just my fandom and enthusiasm for the, for the Expanded Universe. And then, after that, actually, and here's a step in the story I didn't talk about. Um, it was like 2006. Uh, Lucasfilm, I guess on a lark, released the original Unaltered Trilogy. <clears throat> now, people seem to have forgotten that the original trilogy has come out on DVD... And I mean, the unaltered, non-special edition trilogy was out on DVD at one point. And it's like, people have just seemed to fucking forget that or something. But yeah, it was. And so, I picked up those. Because, I mean, at the time, I was, I was snapping up all things Star Wars. And dude, I was on fucking board with the special editions. By all means, put a computer-generated Jabba... In uh, Star Wars. By all means, put Ian McDermott in as the Emperor in Empire Strikes Back. It's great. By all means, put Hayden Christensen in fucking Return of the Jedi at the very end. You know, just on and on and on. And when I watched the original Unaltered trilogy, it just sort of gave me a whole new respect for what those movies were able to do With just the most primitive of technology. You know, with battleship models and things on wires and just stuff like that. And they were able to do so much. And those movies were just so well, just fucking just well done. Just extremely well done. And honestly, the special edition changes only detract from that and that's what i realized right so i became sort of this weird i love the original versions of of the uh, trilogy and i like the prequels and i'm here to tell you there are just not very many people out there that could that could make that claim right so then after that i just completely lost my taste for the prequels altogether. So, let's just summarize, shall we? First, I lost the Expanded Universe. Then I lost my affection for the Special Edition uh, trilogy, right? Because, like I said, I think that those changes when all said and done. None of it works to the benefit of the material. None of it. And then finally... Maybe most painfully. I lost my affection for the prequels. I, I guess I came to a point when I was able to view them more objectively. And what I eventually just came to realize was that... On a technical basis, these movies are extremely well put together. Right? But... As films, as stories... No. You know, not really. And like I said, the action sequences and the visuals and the aesthetics and all that stuff, I can't say a word about that stuff. You know? All that stuff, top shelf. It's top shelf. The action scenes, top shelf. The the themes of each movie. Those are great. But just as films. Okay? As stories, they, the prequels are just not, they're just not that fucking good. They're not. And what I've eventually kind of come to understand is that the real prequels, like if you, if you really need to have prequels, right, for the, uh, for the original trilogy, right, these are the prequels, and I don't want to call them fan edits because that to me has a very particular type of meaning, and I don't want to apply that here, but what I will say is that I sort of made... I I basically just took the, the film score for each of those movies, right? And I basically just went through it track by track by track and paired the music, just of whichever track, paired that music up with that intended scene. And it's basically just a completely silent thing except for the music. So there's no sound effects, there's no dialogue, there's no nothing. It's just... Literally, it's just the footage and the music. It's kind of like a silent movie. And then that's it. Because, you know, George Lucas is always talking about, well, you know, I make silent movies, and so I, really this stuff is supposed to be uh, uh, carried. Uh, my story is uh, is uh, carried by uh, the music. I'm like, all right, well, that's, fuck, dude. I, they're certainly not carried by the dialogue, so let's put that to the test, shall we? And I paired up, as best I could, the... each track with the intended scene, right? And so it's not necessarily the objective to put to put together a coherent narrative. Basically, the object of this was for me to just kind of see for myself to what degree does the music tell the story of each of these scenes, right? How well are the conflicts and all that stuff really brought about and honestly there there's a limit to how much you can do that just for kind of technical reasons i'll come back to that in a minute but generally speaking what i found was that if this had been i I think the prequels basically work best as a sample you know when so much of this stuff is left to your to your imagination and you just kind of kind of come up with it yourself and all you get are some basically some visuals and some music, but you're not really presented with characters or concepts or a plot or anything like that. I think that's actually... the Ultimately, like when push comes to shove, those are the prequels. I mean, honestly, I have to tell you that if it hadn't been that, I would have just said, you know what, the prequels, the real prequels for Star Wars are the trailers for the prequels, and that's it. But, you know, I have to tell you, no... The music is actually a really good job, and to me, when I, you know, if I have to just, if I just fucking have to watch the prequels, I kind of watch these little instrumental cuts because that's what I didn't know what else to call them, so I just called them the instrumental cuts. So you have the Phantom Menace, the instrumental cut, Attack of the Clones, the instrumental cut, get it? And what I found is that you know they actually those scenes mostly do play extremely well with just the music there to support the story and and kind of carry the conflicts and the emotion of it and all that stuff. It actually does work, I think, fairly well. Now, there is a limit to how far you can really do this. And uh, to me, the best example of that is actually Attack of the Clones because that one just seriously kicked my ass. George Lucas hacked that movie to fucking pieces. If you were to go out right now and buy the film score for... Attack of the Clones. I'm almost tempted to say that thing should be taken off of shelves because the film score that John Williams created is not for Attack of the Clones the final product. All right? Because George Lucas fucking hacked that thing so to pieces, so fucking much. You really can't you you, you really can't put the um the music as it is on the on the score back into context with the scenes because it's it, it's just been cut up too much and i think maybe the best example of that would be the arena battle at the end of the movie the part of the film score that's supposed to be paired up with that it's just fucking impossible there's no way to do it all right and what i eventually realized was that you know what that's george lucas's problem that's not mine that's his he's the one that fucked that up not me and I was never really able to get that to work properly. Now, I'll say this for getting Revenge of the Sith synced up with its score. It it wasn't as big a pain in my ass as uh, Attack of the Clones was, but it was still a little bit of an ordeal. Like I said, Attack of the Clones isn't a class all by itself as far as just being a fucking butchered hack job. And But what I'm driving at in all of this is, to, is that... The prequels are best viewed in these instrumental cuts that I made, right? Where you basically... And anybody can make them. It's not that hard. I mean, if you have Windows Live Movie Maker, anybody can use that. And just drop in some wave files of, of the film scores and match it up with each movie. And I'm telling you, dude, it's... That is I think about as good as anybody can ask for. You hear all the time <clears throat> about people making these <clears throat> these uh, these bullshit fan edits that have uh, this cut this scene cut out of it or this deleted scene put back in and to me, all that stuff is just it's arguing around the margins about a bunch of shit that should never have been done in the first place all right To me, the real prequels ultimately are the mu- that's the music from the films. Right, from the prequels, the 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 real prequels are the scores for the Phantom Menace, Attack of the Clones, and Revenge of the Sith. To me, those are the prequels, the music. And anyway, so I guess that's that's my main point. And so um, that, to the extent that I can really get into the prequels at all, those little instrumental cuts of 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 the films using uh just the scores that's about as much as i can uh as much as i can handle so holy shit i have really rambled here so what i'm going to do is uh, just take a break and i'll actually i'm not even i've already taken a break so uh this is actually it um thanks to everybody i appreciate all of you taking the time to listen it's uh, it's obviously been uh, i guess i had a hell of a lot more to say than i first thought but To all of you, thanks. I appreciate all of you taking the time to listen, and I'll see you next week. Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network. You can find the home for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com, which is spelled... T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S You can also find it on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook by searching for Trentus Magnus which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-S M-A-G-N-U-S-S. You can email me and my parole officer at TrentusMagnus at gmail.com which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S M-A-G-N-U-S. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Did you know? You can sponsor any episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks affiliated shows. That's right. Simply click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy, and there's no minimum donation via show sponsor today. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2TrueFreaks gets a cut of what you buy. It doesn't cost you anything extra, and it really helps the freaks out. You get to shop as usual and help out the 2TrueFreaks at the same time. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play, keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promo section. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. Trentus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with De of Milan, Italy.